Hello and welcome to the stories of Northern Life from the Sault Ste. Marie Museum. Thank you so much for being here. With every episode, you are learning a little more about Sault Ste. Marie history and gaining a greater appreciation of our Northern community, the moments, the people, and the places. The Sioux Museum is here to preserve your history, but also to share it in as many engaging and entertaining ways as we can. Your support and engagement with our content keeps the cycle going and allowing us to expand and grow, offering more back to you, our community. So thank you. Season two of the Stories of Northern Life podcast is coming soon. Until then, we are resharing a few episodes over the past two years. That's 100 episodes that we love and think that you will too. Today, we're going to talk about John Johnston. Ever heard of him? He's the Sioux St. Marie, Michigan's version of Ermitage. Of European descent, he entered this region first through Canada as a loyal British subject, but settled in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and continued his journey into the U.S., traveling between Canada and the States. He is an interesting subject and has a great influence on the late 1700s and early 1800s in this area. So let's get into it. Johnston was born in Belfast, Ireland, on the 25th of August, 1762, to an upper-class Scot-Irish family. The family owned Craig, an estate near the Giant's Causeway. His father was a civil engineer who planned and built the Belfast Waterworks. His father passed away when he was just seven years old, and just 10 years later, he oversaw the waterworks in Belfast from 1779 until 1789. This was when he decided to go to the province of Quebec with letters of recommendation to Governor Lord Dorchester from the President of Privy Council Committee of Trade, Baron Hawkesbury, and from the influential merchant Brooke Watson. Johnson sailed in June 1790 on the Clara for New York. He landed on the 25th of August, took a sloop to Albany, and proceeded to Montreal. He ran into an old friend, Andrew Todd, in Montreal. He shared with Johnson the idea of joining the firm of Todd, McGill, and company in the fur trading business on Mackinac Island. Johnston had greater hopes and declined the offer and went to Quebec where he called on Lord Dorchester, the governor who had nothing to offer but did introduce Johnston to Sir John Johnson, the General of Indian Affairs, through a letter. So he returned to Montreal and continued to better his French. By May 1791, a trading trip to Mackinac with Andrew Todd looked attractive. After the summer business was over, Todd set Johnston up with a canoe and five voyagers to La Pointe on Lake Superior's southern shore, near the present-day Ashland, Wisconsin. Johnston and his men built a house, a small house on the Bad River, and he began to learn the language and traditions of the Ojibwas. Eventually, his men left him, and he was alone with the competing traders nearby. Johnston befriended the elderly father, Wabojeg, chief of La Pointe, Ojibwas. Eventually, he asked to marry Wabojeg's beautiful young daughter, Osha Gusko Dakwa, 
Women of the Green Perry, or more modernly known as Princess Green Clay. And to prove his good intentions, the chief asked him to wait a year. And so he did, and they married in the summer of 1792. Later, at Fort St. Joseph on St. Joseph Island, Ontario, he married her again and gave her the name Susan. This union forged for Johnston a firm trading alliance with the Ojibwas. Miss Johnston never learned to speak English, but she can understand, and she was always seen in her traditional clothing. In 1793, they settled down in Sault Ste. Marie as an independent fur trader. They lived in a house owned by the Landrys until 1795, until the Johnston's home began being built. Their home was long, low, and well-built, with an old-fashioned flower garden and a kitchen garden with currant bushes and herbs. He began to dominate the fur trade on the southern shore of Lake Superior and became a wealthy man. He also assisted in building a few posts and was the manager of three. He was working with an annual capital of over $400,000. That's a very large sum for around 1810. John's trading establishment and home was almost exactly opposite the river from Ermatanger's home. They were friends, despite being competitors in their work. They actually worked together and had each other's back. They were both heavily involved with the War of 1812 and took part in the attack of Mackinac Island, preparing on St. Joe's Island with all the traders of the Northwest and Southwest companies as well as all the independents like John, and two, the indigenous allies. Again, in 1814, when the war turned up again, there was a small force of the American troops that was sent to intercept John Johnston, though a British sympathizer who left the community with a party of men to assist the British in the defense of the fort at Mackinac. Mayor Holmes and the American troops traveled through the Old Channel while John used the Nebish Channel and ultimately arrived safely at Fort Mackinac. The Americans were enraged, and although not ordered to, they burned, stole, and destroyed from both sides of the St. Mary's River. The troops invaded and destroyed the undefended Northwest Company post, houses, warehouses, stables with horses, the sawmill, and the lock was destroyed. Once the Northwest Post had been destroyed, the American troops crossed over the river to the home of John Johnston. Miss Johnston saw the men approach and carried any precious possessions she had and hid in the woods with her children. They watched as they destroyed everything. Following the raid of the Sioux, the Americans proceeded with their primary objective to attack Fort Michilimackinac. The British, however successfully repelled the Americans. Unaware of what had happened, Johnston briefly took command at Michilimackinac, while Lieutenant Colonel Robert McDowell led the forces. As justification, Holmes claimed that Johnston was associated with the Northwest Company, therefore all his goods belonged to the company. A new smaller home was hastily built on that site of the old. In 1822, Henry Rowe Schoolcraft, the newly assigned territorial Indian agent, came to the Sioux with Colonel Hugh Brady and his American troops. 
the Johnston family befriended Schoolcraft, and in 1823, Schoolcraft married the Johnstons' eldest daughter, Jane. That same year, an addition was built onto the Johnston home for the newlyweds. The 1823 edition is the only part of the home that has survived. This site can still be visited in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan as a historical building. You can also find Henry Rowe Schoolcraft's Indian Agency office and early home nearby. Now let's go back and talk about John and Susan's children. To tell you more about them, we're going to listen to a historical recording with John Ken as he talks about the family at the Historical Society meeting in the 1970s. The first child was Louis Sara, who was born in 1793 and possibly is the only one of the Johnston children not born in the Sioux. I haven't read anything to the contrary or either way. He was educated in Montreal. He served under HMS Queen Charlotte in the Battle of Lake Erie, which surrendered to Commander Perry. He died at Malden in Upper Canada in 1825 as an officer in the British Indian Department. He was never married. Score one for the Canadians, one down for the Americans. The second child was George, and I think all of you are probably familiar a little bit with your George. He was born in the Sioux in 1796. Like his brother, was educated in Montreal and served with the British forces in the War of 1812. He was present at the capture of Mackinac Island during that war. He later served in the American government as an Indian agent at Mission Point in Sault Ste. Marie, so, you know, spend on both sides. Schoolcraft said of him that after the death of his father, he was the only man in the Johnston family who shows any interest in literature and research. George died in January of 1861. His body was found frozen stiff on the far side of the canal near the rapids. So what happened to poor George, I'm not sure. We know he died. George was married twice. Little was known of his first wife and family, although one son by the name of John is buried in the Indian Cemetery at Bay Mills. And those of you that have been at the Indian Cemetery, this is the one with the little boxes over the graves dates back to 1845. A daughter, Louisa Maria, never married, and the other son, Henry William, has several children still living. Hope you will follow these names along because they utilize the same names over and over again. His second marriage resulted in three sons, Benjamin, James, and Samuel, all killed in the Civil War. If you will believe in Osborne, Osborne claims they were all killed at the same battle. According to the chart here, it says one died in 61, one in 62, and one they weren't sure. But here are three Johnson grandchildren killed in the Civil War, thousands of miles away from home. A daughter, Eliza Ann, never married. The third of the Johnson children was Jane, born in Sault Ste. Marie in 1800. She is probably best known for marrying Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. She was to be adopted by her paternal grandmother and educated in Ireland, but her education was cut short by the death of Jane. Jane was as intelligent and gentle as her mother, although her life was marked with many illnesses and several tragedies. Osborne, in his book, claims that her early death was caused by addiction to the patent medicines of the day. And even Mrs. Jameson, who I'm sure the people on this side of the river adore, 
reported that Mrs. Schoolcraft would be found severely ill and indisposed at times. All of the Johnson daughters had Indian names as well as their Christian names. I understand some of the sons did too, but I haven't run across any of those. Jane died at the home of her sister Charlotte in Dundas, Ontario in 1842, soon after Henry had sailed for Europe on government business. She lies buried in that city. Her family consisted of two sons and one daughter. William, the eldest, was born in what is known to us on the American side as the Nolan House. This is a beautiful dark brown house with a green trim. We called it the old fur company house or the original Schoolcraft house or the Allen house or the Hagley house. There's about a dozen names for it. Upon his death at the age of two, the family moved to several other homes. The Schoolcraft states in his own book, uh, the grief was too great to bear and he never entered the house again. Roughly a year later, the family moved to Elmwood, or the Schoolcraft House, as you know of it, the Indian Agency. The second born was Jane, or Janie. She married a nephew of Schoolcraft's second wife and died in semi-poverty in Richmond, Virginia in 1892. She had no children. Her husband lost his entire fortune in the Civil War. He picked the wrong side. His son, Johnston, never married and fought on the side of the North in the Civil War. Known survivors of this line, the Schoolcraft line, exist. I'm saying known. Osborne conjectures that uh, like for William, John was prolific on the side. The fourth child was Eliza, born in 1802, or a woman of the Morning Star. She was educated in Sandwich, Ontario, and although highly educated, refused to speak English and reverted to many Indian ways and customs. She never married, and it is surmised that she was buried either on Nevis Island or in the Sioux at the time of her death in 1884. The fifth child was Charlotte, woman of the Wild Rose. She was born in 1806 and was noted for her beauty. It is not known where she was educated, but during Bingham's tenure as a Baptist missionary in the Sioux, all of you have probably heard of Abel Bingham, the first Baptist missionary in the Sioux, she acted as Indian interpreter for his many sermons. The person writing this article was the daughter of Abel Bingham, Mrs. Gilbert. Now we'll read some very interesting articles of hers a little later. And she said that. Um, Charlotte would sit next to her father and speak in eloquent Indian terms the sermon that her father was giving at the time. Charlotte married William McMurray. Being from this side of the river, I think most of you are familiar with William McMurray, the Anglican missionary, and considered by many the father of the Anglican Church in this area. Her husband later became Archdeacon of Niagara, and the family lived in Ontario. All of them lives. Charlotte died in 1878 and is buried near Dundas, Ontario, probably next to Jane. I think this was their home in their family was blessed with two children, William and Charlotte, both of whom never married. See this whole family, they uh, about one more generation and most of them quit 
sixth child was William, called the unhappy one by Osborne. He was born in 1811 and educated in Cornwall and later in Quebec. He worked at various jobs, including an interpreter and keeper of the Indian dormitory at Mackinac. I think this is why Osborne called him the unhappy one. He never did hold a job too long. There never was much of a job when he did hold it. He did have other talents. He and his wife had nine children, one of whom was killed in the Civil War. So here is a fourth of the Johnson grandchildren who was killed in the Civil War. He died at Mackinac in 1866 and is buried there. The seventh child was Anna Maria, or Woman of the Red Leaf. She was born in 1814, first married to James Schoolcraft, younger brother of Henry, and main character in the first murder mystery of the area. To this union, two children were born, both girls and neither of whom married. In later years, she, remembered, she married a Reverend Old Taylor and lived her remaining years in Pontiac, Michigan dying there in 1856. No children came from this marriage. The eighth child was John McDougall. And I've seen pictures of John McDougall. He is a very happy person. I think some of you probably have seen pictures of him. I think I may even have one here. He was born in 1816 and schooled very briefly in New York State. He worked at many governmental jobs, including interpreter, Indian farm supervisor, an Ojibwe tribal annuity paymaster. This is the job he seemed to like the best. He and his wife had 10 children, including Anna Maria, the founder of a resort on Nevis Island. This is the one that's Aunt, Aunt Anna that uh, quite a few people on Nevis Island feel are related to. He died in the Sioux in 1895. So John, John and George seem to be the two that carried on the population in the small George and John and William. William. William stayed down on Mackinac Island, so any direct descendants for the name of Johnson, you would have to blame on poor John McDougall, I guess, here in the Sioux. But you will notice there were four grandchildren killed in the Civil War, and most of the children died out of the Sioux, which is quite a surprise for that period of time. John Johnson himself lived until 1828. Two of his eldest children already married, and others were away at school or jobs when his death occurred. His death is recorded by Henry Rose Schoolcraft in a series of letters to George Johnson. By the enclosed, you will perceive that we have lost the best of fathers. Afflictive stroke came suddenly upon us. During his last trip to New York, he had contracted a malignant fever. He reached the vicinity of St. Mary's in a small vessel on the 17th and was brought upon a bed in a barge in so low a state that he could scarcely recognize any of the family. On the 18th and 19th, he roused so much as to converse freely. On the 20th and 21st, he grew worse, but retained possession of his senses. On the 22nd, a visible declension took place made but a few replies to anything addressed to him after one o'clock, inspired him late in the evening, surrounded by his family. It is a strong consolation to reflect that he died as he had lived, in full reliance upon the merits of Jesus Christ. Every circumstance connected with his disease tends to confirm our belief that he is numbered among the blessed, and he has bequeathed to his family a name of unsullied purity and honor. 
disagree, Mr. Schoolcraft. The most kind and incessant attention was given to alleviate his malady by Dr. James, with only partial success. Dr. James is a post-surgeon, and I'll tell you a little about him a little later. I am inclined to believe that we owe to this gentleman the prolongation of his life for some days. I enclose you a lock of his hair, cut by my dearly beloved Jean. His mortal remains were this day deposited to the grave by our collected populace of this place, and deposited by the side of our ever-dear son, Willie. Your mother, Jane, Eliza, Charlotte, William, Anna, and John present you their love and affliction. September 24, 1828. The marker on his coffin is of interest. John Johnson, Esquire, born in Ireland. August 25th, 1762, died September 22nd, 1828, aged 60, 66 years and 27 days. The marker on his grave states, John Johnson, age 66, native land, Ireland, rank, noble. John Johnston was a businessman and was not afraid of borders. Although he did not have a conventional education, Johnston developed a fondness of books and literature. He is the first person we have on record of a Christian who married an indigenous woman and stayed with her all his life. 37 years. Many traders like the young Johnston went through the ceremony, stayed for a couple of years, and left. Their relationship seemed like a true love match. They complimented each other, and both were proud of the family they had made together. John Ken based a lot of the information talked about in this recording from the book Schoolcraft, Longfellow, and Hiawatha by Chase S. and Stella Nova Osborne. I also found a lot of information from an article by David A. Armour titled John Johnston, and our collection at the Sioux Museum, of course. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow the Sioux Museum on Instagram or Facebook to get the most up-to-date information on what we are up to and more Sioux St. Marie history, of course. Season 2 is coming, so stay tuned.